Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. Hello and welcome along to the History Show with myself, John Moynihan. I'm here with you between now and 7 o'clock each and every Tuesday over the next 10 weeks. This series will focus on the historical events of 100 years ago in Kilkenny and on the lives of the people at the time. Each week we'll focus on a different aspect or event of the time and with the assistance of historians, artists, playwrights, authors and more, we're going to learn a little bit more about our local heritage. Just some of the topics to come on future episodes will include the burning of Woodstock House, the executions at Kilkenny military barracks, the role of women in the Irish War of Independence, and how civil war wounds were healed through the playing of Gaelic games. But on tonight's episode, we're going to focus very broadly on the life and state of affairs locally, nationally and internationally in 1922. We'll be speaking to Sinead McCool, curator of Manaw 100, an online resource that's part of the National Commemorations Unit about the national and international context in 1922. We'll be hearing the major stories from the Kilkenny people in January 1922. Historian Owen Swithin Walsh will tell us about the state of affairs in Kilkenny that year. Ryland Houses and Neary on what people ate in Kilkenny at the time and how they prepared it. And oral historian Adrian Roach on the many bands and sounds in Kilkenny in 1922. So all that and plenty more coming up on this evening's show. I hope you'll stay with me for it all. If you want to get in touch, you can text or WhatsApp me rather straight into studio here on the dinnersready.ie text and WhatsApp line. That's 083 306 9696. Or you can email the programme at historyshow at kclr96fm.com. We've got an ad break to take straight away, but do stay tuned. We'll be chatting to Sinead McCool from the National Commemorations Unit next. Turning the clock back to 1922, you're listening to The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. And you're very welcome back to The History Show. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the programme, as we enter the final year of the decade of centenaries, we're going to be taking a look back at things that happened locally 100 years ago. A century ago this year, the Irish War of Independence, War of Independence had come to an end and the treaty that was negotiated between the British and Irish leaders would eventually lead to the civil war starting this year. It was a turbulent time in Ireland, and indeed around the world. And to give us an overview of the national and international timeline of events, I spoke to Sinead McCool, curator of Manaw 100, an online resource that's part of the National Commemorations Unit about the national and international picture in 1922. I began by asking her how focused the people of Kilkenny were on the events taking place nationally at the time. So if you could imagine um, in 1922, if you were living in Kilkenny and the surrounding areas, you would have been very aware of national events and things that were happening because these were the sort of events that were being broadcast across the world. Ireland was debating the Articles of Agreement for a treaty with Great Britain and Ireland. But you often hear that 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 the treaty that was signed in Britain was the treaty, but it was going to be at the end of the year, at the end of December in 1922, that the uh, House of Commons would pass the legislation that would bring the uh, Irish Free State into existence. So during the whole of the year of 1922, I mean, we, of course, we know the outcome of the, those years. We know uh, that, that there's going to be a battle in, in Dublin and then it's going to spread the Mulster Republic and very much affecting 
uh, Kilkenny as a sort of a as you know, as a sort of a, a county that is between the Munster Republic, where the where the, a lot of the fighting goes on, and 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 the and the rest of the country. So people were very aware and very, I suppose, afraid of what was going on. And for the general public that may not have been been you know exactly caught up in events, and what we mean by that is the people that were members of or family or households who were members of the the national army that had been established. Um, or what were known as the irregulars, where they were members of we would now know better maybe as the Irish Republican Army, but they were known in the in the press as the irregulars, so not being part of the regular army. Sinead, it sounds as though there was a lot of uncertainty in the general population at the time. They they are not quite sure how things are going to go. I mean, whether or not uh, um, uh, you know Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith are are going to make you know a, a, a new state. Is this Irish Free State even going to happen? And then you've got the likes of the other side and Eamon de Valera had left the doll with his supporters. And so so people are very unsure. And then you have this the the um, what happens in January, for example, is so that you have the debates in what is now the National Concert Hall um, and they basically it's pro treaty. So it goes in, in favor of the treaty, very small uh, margin, but it but um, some of the the, the TDs had, had abstained. But what the story is generally is that people had gone home over Christmas and they had found that people were very keen um, to to support the treaty and that some people who had maybe not really liked the terms of agreement. Many people thought, you know, the Boundary Commission will sort the north. That's, you know, a few a few years off. Talk to me about the women of Ireland at the time, Sinead. Is it fair to say that the majority were anti-treaty? Overwhelmingly, the, the women of Common Amman rejected the treaty. And some people argue that the that the it is because of the proclamation was addressed to Irish men and Irish women and in that document it actually gave them uh, a, you know a, a full full freedom and that was the idea of the republic other people argue that you know it's because so many people were affected directly the women had held the fort they had been at the forefront of the fighting you know providing the safe houses being in the midst of the fighting and those women who were who were politicized perhaps you know many of them for the first time were 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 very very uh, um you know anti the the idea of a compromise and so what you have left with is is that so women in the press are considered to be very anti-treaty but what about the women who were running the households and what were the people who had you know who just wanted peace there had been eight years of war we also have to remember that in Kilkenny there were very many widows of the women the, the women who had been or or maybe even women who had been fiancés or you know um, engaged to men and now there's this mass you know um group of young men vibrant young and you know, men of, you know, teenage years, right through 20s, young fathers, small children without, you know, who'd been killed in the First World War. So there's an awful lot of pain and sorrow around and, and people, you know, we talk about a lot about the silences that happened at this time. And, you know, the silences were around people's grief. What about trade and employment at the time, Sinead? Presumably our relations with Britain caused complications. I mean, it's sort of in some ways so similar to what's happening in, in, in you know, life today where, you know, small businesses relying on, 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 on business in England, they're looking for their transportation. There's, uh, um, you know, there's, there's, there's our Irish army vessels um, around the coast. Um, there's, 
you know, there's there's now Britain still have some of the ports, but what is going to be the export and import? What have been the charges? What have been the taxes? Whether they're, they, some people had worked for the British establishment. So now Britain are pulling out with a handover of Dublin Castle and um, administration is uh, being packed up all over the place. Although we do know that many of the people who had been in the British civil service, the Irish people stayed on and, and, and stayed in the Irish civil service. So, so um, there isn't really that, you know, that moving out that you would expect in a lot of new jobs and a lot of vibrancy. Then they look at taking over the workhouse system. And that's one of the first things in 22, they start meetings. They start sending in people who had been part of what was known as the Doyle Civil Service, part of the underground government. And they hold meetings in various parts of the country. They go into the, 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 the workhouses to try to get an assessment for whether or not the people can be boarded out or return to their families, whether they can be given a sort of a, a, a you know, a system through now the, the welfare system, which is the old age pension. I mean, they do try and sort the system, but it doesn't really sort the problems because it's a bankrupt state. It was a turbulent time for the provisional government of the Irish Free State, Sinead, wasn't it? Uh, particularly in 1922, following the death of Michael Collins. So you have the deaths of, of Harry Boland, Cahill Brewer, um, Arthur Griffith dies in August of a brain hemorrhage. And so the president of the, um, the provisional government of the Irish Free State is killed and then um, sorry, dies and then, excuse me, and then Michael Collins is killed on the on uh, the twenty second of August, nineteen twenty two, and he has become um, in the in the at the aftermath of the death of Griffith, he's become the 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 head of government, but he's also taken over control of the the, the army. So 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 now there's a situation where although it seems that the Irish army are are are, are gaining control, we don't have. Uh, a sense of what's going to happen because once in the aftermath of Collins, W.T. Cosgrave, who interestingly is 42 years of age and he's the oldest member of the cabinet and um, Kevin O'Higgins, who becomes Minister for Home Affairs, he um, is quoted as saying, and I, I'm just doing it from memory now and paraphrasing, he talked about how they were all sitting around a table at, at W.T. Cosgrave is the oldest at 42 um, and he and Kevin O'Higgins described it as as young men sitting around a table and wild men screaming at the keyhole. Internationally, what was the world's state of affairs? Was anything of particular note in an Irish context? I suppose the main thing that you have to think about in relation to the the rest of the world is that Europe is, you know, um, establishing its itself within the context of the aftermath of the war. This this period of of rebuilding, there's this massive hyperinflation that's happening in Germany, and I mean, and we all know that you know that this is the beginnings of, of what comes next. I mean, the year of 1922, you've got Stalin becoming head of the, the Communist Party. You've got um, Mahatma Gandhi being in prison, um, you know, and and being imprisoned for the for the you know for his opposition. And we know that that ultimately, you know, um, India is looking to Ireland and Ireland's independence and its way of, of achieving independence and it's a way of its the civil disobedience and the the not the the military side of it as much as the dismantling of the administration. Finally, Sinead, talk to me about the poverty in Ireland at the time. It was a widespread issue, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, poverty was a huge issue in Ireland. I mean, right through into the sort of the 60s, you would have had a generation of people who would have said those people who would have supported the you know the nationalist cause would have said would have always associated the 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 poverty um related to the british now one of the things that i think people sort of um have to understand is that you know the famine you know that had happened or the 
Gertie Moore, I mean, if you, you know, we the difficulty of call whether you call it as the Americans do the potato famine because there was, uh, you know, there was food in the country that much, much of which was exported. Um, but the 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 great hunger and the the memory of that and the loss of life and the and the you know the destruction of communities was was still within living memory. Now, what you find in relation to to that is that um, you have. The connection within, you know, we talk about the the uh, the uh, the diaspora now in a way about those millions of people who claim Irish descent. Well, those those people were only in the second generation in in America at that stage. So the communication back to ordinary people, even and the people in Kilkenny, would have known lots of people who were making their way in America, and um, and they would have been very aware of of things that were happening and, and that. So, so poverty, when we talk about it, is politically based because of the, the memory of those times. And that was Sinead McCool there, curator of Manaw 100, an online resource that's part of the National Commemorations Unit about the national and international picture in 1922. So we've heard about the national and international picture. Let's now look through the local lens. Each week I'll be glossing over the local Kilkenny papers from a different month in 1922, bringing you some of the big and not so big stories of the time. In today's episode, we're focusing on January 1922. The Kilkenny People, Saturday, January 21st, 1922. Ten large print pages at the low cost of just three pence. The front page is a mixture of both auctions happening in Kilkenny City and County and the main news of the day. And it's hardly a surprise to find that the main news of this particular issue is the signing of the Irish Treaty in London, the month prayer. The Provisional Government's proclamation is printed in full, including its signatories, taking up a large portion of the front page. That said, there was space for many other stories. One such story was the sentencing of five Irish men at the Old Bailey in London, who were charged in connection with a conspiracy to steal arms from Chelsea and Windsor Barracks the previous September. One of the men was a Kilkenny man, Sergeant Michael Roach of the Irish Guards, who pleaded guilty and gave evidence for the Crown. Roach was given six months imprisonment. In the course of his evidence, Sergeant Roach described how he had meetings with the other defendants in the King's Head public house on Edgware Road, and of how he was given some pound notes following the taking of rifles and machine guns from the Chelsea and Windsor barracks respectively. In court, a long letter which was alleged to have been given to Sergeant Roach by one of his fellow defendants in the exercise yard of Brixton Prison was read aloud. It said, Is it true that in the last statement you wrote, you told all the facts and that you were going to swear to them. I am sure that in Ireland, everyone will say that you sold the pass and that you have split on us. The authorities would prove nothing without your help and unless on the day of the trial you are prepared to sing dumb, we have no chance. In major world news, the news of Pope Benedict XV's failing health also takes up much of the paper's coverage. To quote the piece, the temperature on Wednesday at the Vatican was 103.8 and in view of the Holy Father's age, 67, complications are feared by his physician. Back to local news, and questions are being asked about the taking of Kilkenny County Inspector White's motor car. It was taken the previous Saturday and was discovered lying derelict some miles outside of the city days later. And finally, in a local bargain not to be missed, Tyler's shoe specialists on 4 High Street Kilkenny have a special offer on Glace's popular kid shoes coming in at a bargain price of 10 and sixpence.
History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back to the History Show with me, John Moynihan, indeed. Now, we heard about the historical context of Ireland and beyond from Sinead McCool a little bit earlier, but what of Kilkenny? Well, I spoke to local historian, historian rather, Owen Swithin Walsh, who painted a picture of Kilkenny and the main events happening within the county at the time. I began by asking him to give me a timeline of early 1922. Yeah, I suppose there was so much happening. It's really a, an action-packed year for, for good and bad. The treaty talks and what was happening with the treaty was so important because it literally, when a book ended at the end of, of one year and the start of 1922, of course, as we know, the uh, the treaty uh, was agreed or um, by the Dáil in early in January 1922, with the Kilkenny TDs, Kilkenny Carlo TDs, I should say, split on us, uh, with two going for the treaty, two against the treaty. So you had W. T. Cosgrave. So he was a heavy hitter in the national scene, not just here in in Kilkenny. He was a Dublin man but he would have been brought into Kilkenny to contest the seas, and he was still here in 22. And he was actually in government. You know, he was one of the, the, uh, the government ministers at the time. So he went with uh, the treaty, as did Garrod O'Sullivan. Again, he was from Cork, kind of a cousin of Michael Collins, but his connection to Carlo Kilkenny was, he taught in Knockbeg, up in Carlo. And then you had Ned Elward, uh, who, of course, people would know that are into the War of Independence from Callan. He uh, had fought in the West Kilkenny Flying Column and it took part in many of the major altercations towards the end of the War of Independence. He voted against the treaty, as did James Lennon, another Carlo-based TD. So all that was happening in January. And I suppose what I would say to kind of listeners is we kind of have a habit of reading history backwards as in knowing what's happened next. But in January, February, right up to June 1922, people didn't know we were going to civil war. I know people were split and people were divided, but there was always a little bit of hope that something would be sorted out. Was the public perception of this positive or negative one? It was actually quite a positive thing because um, the military barracks in Kilkenny, the British Army military barracks, now known as James Stevens barracks, uh, that was handed over to the IRA. So these people that would have been pointing guns at each other just a few months before were now uh, exchanging the barracks with literally one group walking in and one group walking out. Um, George O'Dwyer, who was the leader of the Kilkenny Brigade of the War of Independence during the end of the conflict the previous um, previous year, uh, he would have uh, marched them in. They would have all kind of congregated out near the parade on one side and out near James's Park on the other and marched in through the city. To literally like a carnival atmosphere, there's people lining both sides of the streets and cheering them on. So it would have been a, a very interesting time to be around Kilkenny on the 7th of February 1922 to witness that. And you had a lot of parents coming down. So a lot of these IRA the guys would have fought in the War of Independence. They were now taking over the barracks. Their parents would have travelled from all over the different parts of Kilkenny because there was groups from every different part of Kilkenny. Each battalion was represented in some way or other of the nine Kilkenny battalions. And um, so the parents would have came in and watched their sons, you know, marching in and taking over the barracks. It might have been a bit of a I told you so moment for the young people, because you could imagine a lot of these parents. Okay, Some of them are wholly supportive, but some of them are saying, hey, give up that IRA thing or give up that coming and on thing. Uh, it'll only get you into trouble. And, you know, maybe they were afraid that, okay, first of all, just for their own personal safety, but maybe that they were wrong. 
And now this is the moment where the British army are actually handing over the barracks. So maybe it was a time for the kids to say, I told you so, what I was doing wasn't so wrong. And that 19, uh, you know, kind of 16 to 1922 generation were an interesting group of mostly young people, it should be said. And a lot, a lot of their parents wouldn't have had, you know, the same, um, you know, I suppose, uh, the same beliefs as such and wouldn't have been brought up the same way into reading the different types of Irish history and learning the Irish language and all the cultural revival that was happening in the early 1900s. The raising of the tricolour at James Stevens Barracks must have been a seminal moment, I presume, Om. It must have been an emotional moment to have the tricolour being raised in the military barracks in Kilkenny. And actually, they cut down the flagpole, the British, before they left, which was actually just pulled it down. They had a half sod, maybe three quarter sod. As soon as the Union Jack came down, it was pulled down. So the Irish tricolour couldn't go on the on the same on the same flag mast. Now, there, it looks like sour grapes a little bit there, but um, it was something that, you know, kind of goes back in the military terms that a flagpole shouldn't hold the flag of an opposing uh, force or an, oppo- or an enemy force at any stage. So they've done that all over the country. And that's what happened. But the IRA knew this was going to happen. And they had a perfectly created flagpole from a tree that was cut down the night before and uh, beautifully cleaned off. And the Irish tricolour went up at the gate going into the barracks so all the crowd outside could see us. So that was February on. Moving on to March. Things are getting going. There is kind of the split happening between the IRA then. You could kind of say like the Michael Collins side and all that. That was still called the IRA at this stage before it was called the Free State or anything. And you had these, the kind of the, the pro-treaty IRA and the anti-treaty IRA, and there was a split happening because a lot of the fighters, the military people who would have fought in the War of Independence, they voted uh, in, an, in an army convention that they weren't happy with this treaty and our disagreement. So it kind of split the IRA, coming them on, also split, they had split them on previously. So it was very much things were kind of on tenterhooks, but we didn't really know what was going to happen. And of course, on as was recently celebrated, this was the year that the Garda Síochána was formed. The first recruit that I could find from the Kilkenny neck of the woods was in May 1922. Uh, the first Kilkenny man I could see would address in Kilkenny on the list of the Garda list of the first raw recruits that came into the new police force. And uh, when they, go, they were brought in up in the RDS in Dublin, where they kind of trained first, uh, James Cantwell was his name. He was from Dunmore, County Kilkenny. And then the week after, a big group of 33 came up from Kilkenny and they all signed up to police force. And it was good because, you know, it was a paid job and you know, people, people would have been, you know, would have been a bit of an income, but it would have been quite a novelty, I presume, as well as everything else. And of course, Owen, Kilkenny came to national and in some respects international attention this year, didn't it? Why? Because we had this two-day battle of Kilkenny on the 2nd and 3rd of May 1922. Now, uh, it's basically civil war in all but name here. And as I said to Sue Nunn, one of your colleagues there before, I said the civil war nearly started in Kilkenny, but she said back to me, well, the civil war did actually start in Kilkenny. It's just that they managed to pause us or put a stop to us or stop the leak. And that's exactly what happened. So there was this tension going between the two different groups. You had the anti-treaty IRA and the pro-treaty uh, IRA, you could call them, soon to be called the Free States or the Provisional Government Forces, whatever you want to call them. And what would happen is they started kind of shaping up to each other by taking over different buildings around Kilkenny. So the anti-treaty IRA took over the old RIC barracks and the Kilkenny jail, um, which used to be 
house on Rock Street, and they took over the yeah, the police barracks, and then also, uh, on uh, on oh yeah, Parliament Street, and also the John Street police police barracks. And then the the Free State weren't happy with this, but they didn't intervene because it would kind of cause trouble. The leader of the Free State in Kilkenny, he had just came in then arrived was General Prout. Uh, he was a Tipperary man who would fought in the First World War, had come back to fight in the War of Independence, but then took this uh, officer position in Kilkenny. Uh, he was a bit, maybe say, heavy-handed in some ways, where he, he kind of evicted the anti-treaty IRA, shall we say, out of the jail. Now, he did this because they had taken whiskey, long story here, but they had taken whiskey as part of the Belfast Boycott Agreement. He didn't like this. He kind of boosted them out. The anti-treaty felt they had just as much right to be anywhere they wanted in Kilkenny because they felt that their army was the legitimate army of the Irish Republic and these free state guys, no, didn't, uh, didn't agree with it. So anyway, things escalated then. That was on a Saturday and then on the Tuesday to hit back they um, took over key buildings around Kilkenny, major buildings for everything from uh, Wilston's Grocery, which is kind of Egan's, I think now, just opposite McDonough Junction there. They, uh, they took over buildings right on both sides of Green's Bridge because it was obviously a thoroughfare. They took over um, the Imperial Hotel, uh, which was just there on Rose Inn Street. And of course, dramatic though, they took over St. Canis's Cathedral and uh, the Round Tower mainly. And they also took over dramatically Kilkenny Castle, the home of Lord Ossery. And my thanks to Owen Swithin Walsh there for explaining more to us about the historical context in Kilkenny in 1922. We'll be hearing the second half of that uh, 1922 timeline with Owen next week. Now, as I said at the top of the show, not only will we be investigating the various historical events of 1922 throughout the series of programmes, we'll also be delving deeper into the lives of the people. This week, we're going to focus on food and cooking. And who better to tell us a little bit more about that than Anne Neary from Ryland House Cookery School, who gave me an in-depth breakdown of what people were mostly eating in 1922 and how they cooked it. Food in the 1920s, from 1900 onwards, uh, lots of, a lot of people uh, ate local food from local farmers because we did not have a farmer's market back in the day. So the food was brought into the towns and villages and around the country and milk came in a churn and you bought the milk from the milkman in the churn. You didn't have bottled milk delivered, uh, especially in the country areas like we have today. Then again, around the coastal towns, especially, uh, uh, usually a ginnet or a donkey would actually supply fish around to them. And then people also forage at that time. They're great for berries and nuts and the autumn like they would they would make blackberry jam and they'd forage for crab apples make crab apple jelly they'd get nuts like walnuts from the trees hazelnuts all those sort of things they also snared rabbits shot pigeons the wealthy shot deer and rabbit and a lot of farmers killed their own pigs cattle and sheep a pig was a great kill it supplies pork later smoked bacon pig's head and uh, blood to make black puddings pudding lanes called after the black puddings as the uh, cattle were sold on the fair green and the pigs were sold on the fair green and then they used to come down to where Pudding Lane is today and they would actually make the black pudding there. Kilkenny, uh, for all farmers, when they killed a pig, they would, the pork steak would be the prized piece out of it. And then pork was eaten by roasting 
leg of pork or a loin of pork. The pig's feet were given to the farm manager along with the pig's head. This was a real prize-given thing because what he would actually do then is he would boil his pig's head, eat and and uh, the feet, and then they'd make brawn of what was left. And with the hot meat off it, they would eat like the, the cheeks. I mean, we still have pig's cheek. They would eat cheek pig's cheek and ear and tongue and they serve that then with uh, some cabbage and white sauce and boiled potatoes but then the, what the interesting thing is that after the farm manager had got his outfit it was passed on to all the farm workers depending on where they were in a row if you know what I mean so it was the thing they, the, the next to him he got the bones to boil would flavour his cabbage and so on until the last fella got it on the farm so by the poor last fella got it it was tasting nothing off it but anyway the diets were very seasonal at that time and consumption of fruit and veg mainly eaten by the, the season so in from May, June, July August, September, October that was sort of seasonal other than that uh, they started preserving things so they preserved jams and jellies and they did water glass eggs is what they used to call them because the hens wouldn't be laying in the winter time hens are season as well now with hens that lay all the year round and then they would also dry out the pork the pork which was then bacon and they'd put it someplace near an open fire and a lot of farmers would have an outside place that they would have um, a kind of a house a kind of like a smokehouse and they put the bacon up in the rafters and that's how they sort of actually sort of used that uh, again common in, in homes before we got electricity uh, uh, people used a lot of spices that they'd make it up in a pest tomato, such as nutmeg, cinnamon, salt and peppers to flavour the meats. A lot of average houses had an, an open fire in the kitchen, but then there was the people that started getting cookers. And I, I'm, I'm almost certain that Aga came in around 1920, which was like a chef in the kitchen, and this made things an awful lot easier. But for those on open fires, they cooked bread, they pot roasted and they roasted veg, and the bread was made in a basket pot, which with hot coals were placed on the lid. And they would actually be make the cook the bread cook more evenly. Desserts were usually apple pies and bread puddings. And uh, cream was all available, available and butter was bought into Kilkenny from the farmers and sold in the now butter slips. And the optimum temperature was in the butter slip there because between, if you walk down the butter slip, there's kind of a roof on it that's arched. And between that step and the bottom step, where it opens again, that's where they kept the butter. And butter was all, always sort of sold in there. Chocolate was also around at that particular time. I think Cadbury's actually opened up sometime in the late 80s and in 19, they would have had sort of had chocolate. And again, cocoa would have been drank sort of going to bed as well, sort of at night. The farmers as well that would kill their own cattle. And again, freezers weren't sort of in sort of at, at the particular time. But um, they would, they'd pit, kill an animal and then so many people had divided up between them and that's how they ate it while it was sort of fresh. They used to eat meat at that time that would actually be maybe only a week killed or something like that, which we would never ever think of doing now. If you want to go on their main diets really from, from the 2022, the dinner was at in the middle of the day. It was normally veg and two meats. If a pudding would be done on a Sunday, like a rice pudding or an apple pudding or an apple pie or something like that, your tea in the evening time, which they called your, their supper, because they had tea at three o'clock, that was the tea break, and then they had their supper around six to seven o'clock. And that would always consist of maybe boiled eggs or scrambled eggs or something on that particular line. 
or if there was a joint of meat left over since since the lunchtime, they'd be carved up and it would be actually uh, eaten then. Now, and a very big thank you to Anne Neary of Ryland House Cookery School there for her expertise. Now, music has always been a big part of our heritage and in Kilkenny in 1922, it was jam-packed with a host of bands of various descriptions. To learn a bit more about this, I spoke to oral historian Adrian Roach, who opened up the books and researched the popular music and bands in Kilkenny at the time. Marching bands uh, emerged um, in Ireland as part of a, an international brass band movement, uh, mainly during the middle and the late part of the 19th century. Um, they had a huge success in, in Britain and the USA. Um, in Britain, you can think of the Industrial Revolution, um, all of the types of industry that emerged out of that. Uh, you had uh, collieries, ironworks and foundries, cotton mills, gasworks, shipyards. Most of those industries in whatever region or area they were, they were, you know, manufacturing or working in, they generally had a brass band or some type of uh, marching band that would, you know, uh, help the workers and bring the, some of the workers in into the into the the, uh, the fold, as it were. Um, this movement was aided by the arrival of new um, portable horns, like the bugle, the saxophone, the tuba, which were easily carried. Um, and the, uh, the growth of literacy helped the spread of the in instruction manuals and sheet music, which became very popular uh, throughout that time as well, too. Um, in England as well, you also had trade, the trade union movement, and they all generally had their own bands. And of course, there was the Salvation Army and uh, YMCA brass bands as well, too. Um, and many people will remember in the States, the composer John Philip Sousa, uh, who was well known for his brass band, arrangements for brass bands. So in here in Ireland, um, there were quite often the, uh, most people would have had early experience with military bands, which located in the military garrisons around the country, the, the British ones, obviously, at this time. Um, uh, and these uh, military bands often played at uh, official ceremonies, parades, and other special occasions. Um, Kilkenny probably most likely had one based in, in, in the castle there or in, in uh, some other quarters around that area. Um, a lot of the local civilian bands were influenced by the marching techniques and the, for, uh, the formations that they saw the military bands use. And these local bands that rose up gave um, uh, men the opportunity for social interaction other than the, the pubs or at work. Um, and music was became to be seen as a form of united celebration in local parish communities. Here in Ireland, the uh, local bands were, all, rather than being associated with work, uh, as it was in the UK, uh, they were more associated with geographic locations. So towns, villages, uh, townlands or, or parishes would often form the, their own local bands. Um, generally, the bands were of three types. Um, you had the uh, brass bands or brass and reed, as I've mentioned before. Um, you had fife and drum bands, 
uh, a fife was just a, basically a small flute um, and these would they're, they're still very popular in the north and we see them on, on uh, occasions when they're brought up when they play around there um, and then there were the uh, pipe bands the, the, as, or sometimes they were called the, the war pipe bands um, and they were they were quite popular around the country as well too there were bands all over um, so many I, I don't think anybody has counted up <laughs> all the bands around the place but certainly all the main towns and cities had their own uh, at least one if not more bands so if I think of um, uh, Limerick for example or Cork uh, they had uh, Limerick had several parish bands St Mary's St John's Parish um, and the Sarsfield Fife and Drum Band um, and in Cork there was bands like Barrick Street the Butter Exchange Band um, and uh, other towns had uh, um, like Tipperary had a brass band Tralee uh, and Kerry had bands as well too. Another influence in the, the middle of the 19th century um, were, was the temperance movement, uh, which rose up because of the, the all surreal problems that were uh, to be had with alcohol in the country at the time, as it was in, in England as well too. Um, and the, the, the temperance movement was founded by Father Theobald Matthew in Cork. Um, and that saw, over the, the, the following decades, it saw a big rise in the number of civilian bands. Um, the movement was hugely popular and uh, scores, hundreds and hundreds of people joined the temperance movement uh, and forswore their, their um, drinking practices and going out to the pubs and all the rest of it. And a big thank you to Adrian Roach there, oral historian on the many bands and sounds in Kilkenny in 1922. Adrian is currently working on a major project in County Longford, tracing that county's musical history roots, so keep an eye out for that. And you can keep up to date with just some of his work on www.thehistorytrail.ie. We've got a break to take, but we'll be right back. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back. Well, that's just about it for this evening's episode of The History Show. I do hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join me again at the same time next week when we'll we'll be unearthing some unknown stories with local historians and authors. But until then, it's a good evening from me, John Moynihan. Stay tuned for Fully Loaded with Owen Carey. And we'll play you out with The Ballad of Michael Collins by Johnny McAvoy, featuring some of the contributions of our political leaders at his memorial earlier this week at Bailnablaw. A very good evening to you and do text us or email us on the History Show at KCLR96FM.com if you'd like any topics covered. A very good evening to you. Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media.